Welcome to Blue Collar Zen. We hope you enjoy these tales and conversations recorded here at the Detroit Zen Center. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's story continues to follow Wonhyo on his journey. It is titled Wonhyo Meets Big Brother. You can find the original version of the story in the 1985. Winter Journal of Spring Wind, a publication by the Buddhist Society for Compassionate Wisdom. The founder of the society is Samu Sunam, a Zen master and monk from Korea. He is also the author of today's story. We hope you enjoy. Wanyu waved his friend away, shouting, You go! Go! And off Wanyu went, almost running along the way that they had come the day before. Wanyu was usually calm, gentle, and dignified. But from the way he now behaved, he certainly did not look like his usual self. He looked a little crazy. Wanyo made his way back to Kyungju, the capital city of the kingdom of Shilla. He flipped out, became a bit insane and free. He would hang out in the marketplace, live among the beggars, and play with the village urchins. This was a great surprise to everyone who knew him before. People wondered out loud what had happened to him. But Wanyo did not seem to mind at all. From his beggar friends, Wanyo learned that there was a monk whom people called Great Peace because he always went around chanting, Taeon, Taeon, which means Great Peace. Great Peace taught people to exercise laughing at least three times each day. Once in the morning, again at midday, and before you went to bed. He would go around wearing only a waistcoat for a jacket, bearing his tummy and belly button in kind of a comical way. When asked why he bared his tummy, he answered saying, I breathe through my belly button, so it needs open contact with air. Or he'd say, my tummy is full of energy and it's very stuffy with clothes on. Great Peace disliked frownies and angries. Whenever he saw them, he would make a special effort to give them a laugh and smile lesson on the spot. First, he would blink and twinkle his shining, innocent eyes in order to arouse curiosity and thus distract them from their source of anger or displeasure. It was said his eyes resembled the combined eyes of both cat and rabbit. Then he would suddenly burst out laughing and his face and neck would turn red as ripe strawberries. And he rolled over as he laughed, and people would smile and just start laughing along dumbfounded. <laughs> this would continue for three to five minutes. Then suddenly, 
Great Peace would stop laughing. By now, everyone was bright with smiles. Great Peace would then shout, Okay? And everyone would go, Okay! Without knowing what it was all about. Laugh for your health. Smile to prolong your life. Joy and happiness to you all. So saying, Great Peace would float off in the direction of South Mountain like a piece of cloud. The beggars worshipped Great Peace, calling him Big Brother, a term of strong respect and endearment for paupers. The causes and conditions for their relationship were natural ones because Great Peace believed that monks, nuns, lay people, and beggars were close relatives to each other. On a warm spring day, the beggars and some monks gathered together outside the city gate in solidarity and asked Great Peace to address them. Great Peace asked them to join him in revealing their laughing Buddha nature. So, of course, they started out laughing together. And then Great Peace said, Homage to our great ancestors. Let it be known in public that we are homeless and penniless, but we are not helpless. Our poor tribe takes high heaven as its roof, great earth as its floor, and we dwell in the garden of mountains and rivers. For all our lives, we never fall into worldly muddle, but remain free from anxiety and enjoy pure poverty. On a warm or hot day, we sit on the grass, disrobe and pick lice hiding in the seams of our clothing. When we tire of picking lice, we lie down and fall asleep, warming our privates in the sunlight. Through this practice of poverty and emptiness, we enjoy vast freedom and cultivate compassion and wisdom like a miracle. This is our ancestors' way. We live on leftovers and handouts from people of the world. Other than that, we do not actually associate ourselves with worldly people. However, occasionally we panhandle from them for extra pennies in order to buy wine. That is our only fault. We get a little tipsy. We lie down under the bridge, our natural shelter, in the cool evening breeze. Joy and happiness to you all. Long live our tribe. They saluted each other by raising high their broken wine bowls and chanted, Long live our tribe. They felt great about their solidarity ties. As word spread about the successful solidarity meeting outside the city gate, people learned about Big Brother's address. They got really inspired and wanted to join the vagabond life of beggars. Some voluntarily relinquished family life in order to seek the carefree lifestyle of beggars. As the sudden increase in the number of indigents became a social concern, people in the society accused Big Brother of disrupting family life and corrupting innocent people. Thereupon, Big Brother got the new and old beggars together, developed a piece of wasteland in the South Mountain and established a laughing Dharma community for them. But Big Brother did not live in the community, nor did he participate in the running of it. 
He'd say, each of your own eye and hand of 1,000 eyes and 1,000 hands of Kwan Sam Posal, the Bodhisattva of great compassion. So the many eyes and the many hands of Kwan Sam Posal coordinate well and run the community. No trouble. When Wanyo heard the story of Big Brother, he got really excited and wanted to see him right away. But Big Brother would go around in the public places and everybody would see him all the time. Then he would suddenly disappear from public and no one would see him for a long while. When asked about his whereabouts, people would point to the direction of South Mountain and say, he's gone back to the mountain. After some investigation, Wanyo learned that Big Brotherly, Big Brother regularly went into retreat at his hermitage up in the rock formations of the mountain. Nobody knew what he did during his retreat, but when he came down the mountain from his retreat, he was always bursting with energy, infectious smiles and laughter. After some hesitation, Wanyo decided to give him a visit. The whole South Mountain was full of temples and pagodas. From early morning till late at night, the clear ringing of temple bells, the Moktak reverberated in the more than 20 valleys of the mountain, and Buddhist chanting and invocation from devoted minds followed each other in different corners of the mountain, as if reminding the visitor that he is not far from Buddha land. Big Brother's Hermitage was located near present Chilbul Am. It required more than one hour of steady climbing to reach Chilbul Am from the nearby village. Above Chilbolam, there was no path leading to Big Brother's Hermitage, only rocks rugged and steep. Wanyo crawled up the steep rocks on his four limbs and then walked sideways like a crab. When he finally arrived at Big Brother's Hermitage, he was soaked with perspiration. Big Brother's Hermitage was made of natural rock slabs. One large piece of rock jutted out from the mountainside, and the flat surface of the top served as a natural stone floor. Another piece of rock overhung like a roof. Big Brother was sitting alone in the caved-in area between the two rocks, which commanded a breathtaking view of the capital of Shilla down below in the distance. Wanyo made a bow and sat before him. Big Brother took a long look at him. Finally, he said, You smell like a monk. I have nothing to do with a monk. Go, go, leave me alone. Wanyo felt awkward, but did not know what was wrong with him, so he came down a little dejected. He spent the next few days trying to figure out what was wrong with a monk. Then one morning, he finally realized just exactly what was wrong with the monk. He slapped his thigh. Of course, he was happy again and went out. Around the corner, he found children playing. He approached them to ask if he could join them. The children looked at him suspiciously and then looked at each other puzzled. One of them finally said, Are you serious? Of course I'm serious, said Wanyo. He's just a big kid, shouted one of the children. That's right, I'm just a big kid, 
replied one goat cheerfully. So they began to play together happily. After a while, they sat around for a break. They asked Wanyo if he could teach them a song. Wanyo cheerfully agreed and taught them a song which went. Could someone lend me an axe with no handle so that I can carve a pillar that can support heaven? They all sang it together a few times and then parted. Wanyo went around singing the song like a lunatic. The song also spread among the children in the capital. In a few weeks, it seemed all the children in the capital were singing the song. Finally, the song reached the palace of King Muyal. As the king of the shamanist tradition, he interpreted the song in the following manner. An axe with no handle must mean a woman without a husband. A pillar that can support heaven must imply a wonderful son that would benefit the entire nation. Wonderful, wonderful indeed, he exclaimed out of joy. One you is a man of men. His seed must be good enough to benefit all beings. And then the king remembered his daughter, Yosuk, who was living in the palace since she lost her husband in the battleground. He felt happy about the prospect of making the match between the famous monk and a widowed princess. Then the king called some of his retainers and gave secret instructions and sent them off to find Wanyo. The king smiled and felt happy. That's really a really a great story. He goes to meet Big Brother, and Big Brother is basically a laughing Buddha. Yeah, of the most profound sort. Right. I guess I'd put it to you that way. <laughs> oh. Buddhism can really come across sometimes as being quite serious. And and we were talking earlier this morning before the podcast about how much guilt we carry around. We turn even something like meditation practice into this, oh, I should do this. Yes. I wonder what your thoughts are on making sure that our spiritual practice, Buddhist practice, can be enjoyable and lighthearted and... and uh, yeah. Well, again, I think what uh, Big Brother is teaching people is very clearly a behavior, mm. right? So sometimes here I've told people, just try putting a smile on your face when you, when you see people, even people you don't know. Like, you don't have to do a laughing necessarily, but lift yourself up because you're not just all the time busy thinking about yourself. That's what becomes encrusted and, and stuck and feels like nothing's fresh again. Yeah. The minute you you smile and, and you begin to look at the world from eyes that now are reflecting 
more of the truth. That is that you're not alone. You're with all of this. You're with the people. You're with the birds. You're with the trees. You're with the sidewalk. You're with it all. Mm. Like we, we, we can't be separate from it all. And that's what makes life so difficult. We're trying to be. Right. Why are we trying to be separate from it all? What is that that's happening there? Well, I think, you know, the only kind of generalization we could make is that we've, for certainly our life before Buddhism, whether it's a life or lives, whatever you choose to believe, we've been doing this for a long time. Like we have a pattern of behavior that we just continue. It's what I was talking about earlier, about the continual dialogue that we're having with ourselves. Like you feel like you have to urinate and you can just get up and go urinate. You're not far from a toilet. But instead, many, many people go, I better go urinate. Who the hell are you talking to? There's nobody around. Right. But that's the kind of dialogue that goes on because we hold in such high esteem the idea of a separate mind, mm-hmm. a separate I, I myself. Does that separate self have a function? Oh, yes, to save all beings. We chant it every night. Like, people are suffering. And and instead of breaking out of our own, even with just behavior, right? You don't have to be enlightened to laugh or smile. Right. You brighten people up, just like Big Brother did. But primarily, you're also brightening yourself up. And you were referring to that person who is brightening people up as a separate self. Well, in the sense that... that People are seeing you separately. Right. The deeper you uh, go in your practice, you begin to realize there is no separation, that that's arbitrary. But people see it that way. And for that, you present a self that is individual in the sense that you look different than everybody else. You may dress in different clothing. But essentially, uh, the more that you're coming from the place that this is truly my brother or my sister... That's very interesting, yeah. So we have to act as if we're separate, even if we realize that fundamentally we are not separate from the world around us. Well, sure. We have a a body and mind function in the world. Yeah. Right? But most people are trying to make that uh, the most important thing and resolve all the issues with that separate mind, and it can't happen. That that body that people are seeing yeah. has a has a lifespan. It has an individual person, and and it's going to die. Right. So we we don't have to make any illusion about that. We don't have to pretend there's something else. We have to discover uh, the truth. Yeah. And the truth is that um, there is no coming and going. There is no idea about birth and death in the true world that's made up by the discriminating minds of human beings oh that's interesting so what you're saying is that if the minute you identify yourself as separate you've now entered the world of life and death but the original world is undivided we do that we do that inadvertently like out of habit that's yeah. what i'm talking about we built those patterns yeah so deeply 
that we have a hard time escaping from them. The other thing that that we can escape dangerous situations. We can take precautions to avoid wild dogs in, in the city when you're out walking or people jacking your car. Like these are dangerous situations that they're they're avoidable. Right. It's unavoidable. Is this continual dialogue? There's no way to avoid it except to put it to rest. And you put it to rest. That's the whole point behind Buddhist teaching, and in particular in Zen, that's the that's what matters the most. So at least with your behavior, it appears like you're putting it behind you. Like if you're doing what Big Brother did, I don't think those people care one way or the other whether you're awakened or not awakened, right? You've done an act that you can only do when you get out of yourself to do it. Mm. Like, And you know, when you walk around Ask yourself, how often do you look at people and just smile, just gently, and make eye contact with them? This takes the courage of a behavioral approach to your own problems. Mm. And in the process, you're helping others with their own problems. Yeah, that's, that's a great teaching. I think that it's really a wonderful teaching in American culture where we are highly conditioned to think about our own thoughts and feelings as being uh, of vital importance. Can you talk about how, as Americans, we can get over this idea of our feelings being so important? You know, for example, a lot of people have reported to us over the years, oh, it's so hard to get up in the morning and meditate, even though they want to. They talk more than they will say, well, I feel really guilty about that. So how do we disentangle ourselves from this complex thing of guilt and emotion and do the things in our life that we want to do that we know are in our best interest? Well, you, you raised several points, and I want to go back to the the earliest one, and that is we need to understand what the function of thought and feeling uh, feelings are. Okay. And the teaching goes that we're never going to be free of these. These are always going to be going on. And it's the getting tangled up with them that, that leads to the, the delusion the struggle that we that we all have. So then you could easily think, well, these thoughts and feelings are in the way, but they're not in the way, they're essential. Because no person that has thoughts and feelings is ever apart from their Buddha nature. Right? It's like sentient being and enlightened being come from the same root. So the way we say it in Zen culture First thought, best thought. So using the example I used earlier, if I have to pee, I've experienced something happening to me, and the thought passes, I need to pee. I don't need to say, I need to pee. I just have to recognize and go, Mm. right? So that's first thought. There's no second thought. Second thought is, uh, maybe I can wait a while. Uh Uh-oh. Now we're starting to get tangled up. I see. And the same is true of feeling. Feeling 
provides the the texture, um, the, the the vividness of life. Yeah. We don't want to be without our feelings, but we don't want to get stuck with them. Right. So that's the practice in in almost every school of Buddhism that uses meditation, is to see these thoughts and feelings as something that you don't need to get involved with unless it's relevant to, to the situation that you're in at that very moment. So if we okay, so what I think I hear you saying is. If you have, for example, decided, I would like to get up, you know, on Monday mornings and meditate at 7 o'clock before my workday starts, from 7 to 7.30. Then when your alarm goes off at, you know, 6.30 and you get up, it seems sometimes that there's an emotion right there well, waiting see, the, for us. The going, point is it doesn't matter hmm. um, if it's not relevant. So let's just say... In a sense, you've made a vow. Mm-hmm. Right. So a vow overcomes anything that goes against the vow, whether it's a thought or a feeling. Could be the thought, "Well, I don't really want to get up. I shouldn't have done it," or "I don't. I don't feel like doing it." But you've made a vow. So you've got to be really careful about making vows, recognizing the idea then is to stick by them. So what what I would do, per, what I do personally, is. If, if my alarm goes off, I get out of bed and stand up before I shut the alarm off. I just get up and, and immediately, when my mind's awake, because I'm not necessarily practicing when I'm sleeping, I immediately find my practice, okay. which is right in front of me, right? So I start doing it. I start doing all of the stuff that I need to do until I until I waver on that and start thinking about should I do this or should I do that. Mm. That becomes problematic for most people. It's not that they're that you automatically you you're the person setting the schedule. So what I think I hear you saying is there's no getting around that it takes effort. Mm. Well, of course, uh, you know sometimes. We would like it to be what, what we call in Buddhism effortless effort or, or willless activity. But at first, it takes tremendous willpower. I see. Especially if you're going against a trend that you've done for so long. Yeah. I mean, people can see what they've done this life if they look carefully. Right. But they don't even know what they were doing before this life. But it was similar. Yeah. And so those things are they're like grooves that are so deep now. You've got to make quite an effort to get out of it. Other than that, it's not going to happen magically. You're so, suddenly not going to find a teaching that's going to have you leaping out of bed to do it. I I think that's really important to hear because I do think that we are conditioned, maybe not so much in your generation, but definitely by the time I was growing up, I think that we I do think that we were fed the fed the line that you know life is supposed to feel good and the right things feel good and you know they're right because they feel good and so when things aren't feeling good there's maybe a conditioning there going hmm maybe I shouldn't do this maybe I don't have to do this maybe this is not really going to take care of myself if it doesn't feel right so I th- what you just pointed out there is really really important and maybe needs to be stated because it may seem implicit to you, tremendous effort, tremendous willpower, 
is required at the initial stages of attempting to take up spiritual practice. Right, and, and I think that as I reflect back on my life, in my case, elementary school was kindergarten through grade eight. I can assure you, I had no trouble getting to the playground well before the, the bell to start school because I wanted to play so badly. Then I get to ninth grade in high school. I can't get out of bed easily. I'm, I'm laying in bed, it's five to eight, my class starts at eight, my mother's begging me, please, you're, you're gonna be late, you're gonna be late, right? And that goes on until the, my freshman year, freshman football team practice at 6 a.m. Was I there? Absolutely. I'm up at five o'clock. I don't care what time I'm getting up. I know that I want to get to something. So I think people need to reflect on what they did get up for. Okay. Now, some of those things might not be as positive as you'd like them to be. Like if somebody's getting up because their their drug dealer is only there at, at that time, right. that's, that's going to be counterproductive. But they do recognize that they get up for that. The other thing that I noticed in, in college, and I, I've said before, when I had a girlfriend and I was totally crazy about her, I didn't care what the weather was like. I didn't care what the circumstances were. I was going to get to see her. But after a while, when I got tired of that, I started making excuses for why I couldn't come when I said I was going to come. And that's where the vows come in. Exactly. So you you have to continue acting the way that you acted in those early Well, stages. because I inadvertently think the problem is her. Right. And and there may be some validity to that, but largely the problem is with me. I began acting as if it didn't matter, and of course then it didn't to me. That's interesting. Sunam, can I ask you why do you think Wonhyo went to visit Big Brother? He had had his awakening, so what was he looking for? Well, I think it's important for people to understand that there is something called initial awakening. Okay. And it can be very profound, as it was in Wonhyo's case. But there's going to be additional awakenings. Right? The greatest of teachers can recount several that were substantial and, and, and even bigger barriers than the, the very first one. So Huanyo heard about this uh, from beggars and people that really love this person. Yeah. So whether he was looking for guidance or just curious, we don't know. But then look at what the big brother did. You smell like a monk. Oh, and he said, I don't have anything to do with monks, and send him away. Now, you could say, this is a koan. Like, what's wrong with a monk? He says that. Right. And then, ah! <laughs> and then he goes out and does, you know, something that is highly unusual. And that continues as we continue the story. We'll see, he does things, you go... He's a monk. How, do, how does he do that? Well, he's doing it because his freedom is starting to be expressed. Right. Right? So it sounds like the trajectory here, if we bring Wanhyo's life into our own, is that 
When we're young, it's quite easy to be happy because we're not conditioned. So we're happy, we're sad, we're happy, we're sad. But, you know, essentially we're, children are very bright and uninhibited. And they don't hold on to things. Right. Like your mother scolds you in the morning, but by the time you get home for, right. after school, it's all, that's all behind you. You don't even think about it again. Right. And then we start looking for ways to be happy again as we get older. So we take up, you know, maybe spiritual practice like Buddhism or meditation. And then the initial stages, we might have that beginner's mind. Oh, this is great. I can't wait to go to the Zen Center and meditate at, you know, five o'clock in the morning. Mm. Or I can't wait to go to that retreat in the mountains of Korea. And then you get there and the first few days might be great. But then by day five, you know, 85 days left it's not looking so great suddenly anymore. And so then it gets back to what you brought up with your experience with uh, your girlfriend that you've now identified the problem as something outside of yourself. Mm. So maybe, I think think what I hear you saying is the trajectory then is there's gonna be a middle area where spiritual practice or anything isn't gonna be fun. It's not gonna feel good, but you have to work through that and then eventually you get back, you get to the other side like Wonhyo did and you have an experience of, of true happiness. That's, I think, exactly right. And, and what, what we have to recognize, everyone wants to be happy. Yeah. And regardless of how old you are, uh, once you become an adult at least, but even my own case, I would have to say that my dissatisfaction with life started between grades 8 and 9 just became a disaster that I didn't even want to be part of. What happens in that situation is clearly on our shoulders. But no one, typically no one tells you that. Mm. And so so what happens, which again, using my own life as an example, I did all kinds of things to get to Happiness, right. make enough money, get a professional job, get enough education, all of the all of the so-called good stuff, right? Yeah. But happiness was always interrupted, even when there were periods of happiness, by dissatisfaction. Even though I didn't even know it was, but just I wasn't happy. Right. So when I discovered Zen, in particular, I discovered that this is a path it doesn't let me down at the end. In other words, if I make the effort like I've been making my whole life to get happy, here I'm not going to be let down. How do I know? Because you meet people like Big Brother. You meet the teacher that you have. You you find out that there are people living happily in the world, free from anxiety, Mm. free from frustration, just living their lives quietly, unassumingly, in a way. Right? That's that's beautiful, Sin, and that's exactly how I felt when I met you. I was a teenager, and I remember very vividly you walked in the room, and intuitively I could see, wow, this is a very happy person. Mm-hmm. Not in a, a an overflowing, joyful way, you know, like some, not quite like Big Brother, you know, with belly laughter, but you were you were very comfortable in your own skin. It was clear to me. And that was very attractive and uh, and allowed me to trust you. Yeah. Well, I think you've really hit a point here that I'm going to make right now. 
for a teacher, it's ludicrous to try to get students. Because what you just described was having an affinity for me and what I was saying. And based on that, you, you literally used the word, you could trust some level of trust initially. And in Buddhist culture, what we say is, of course, we've been acquainted before. So if people are wondering, well, how do I find a teacher? Well, you go to a teacher and you find out which one you have affinity for and and what they're teaching and that you can trust them. Yeah. So there's no formula for that. Right. It ha- I mean, I think even you would say it was totally unexpected. Absolutely. Right? And I would say the same thing. Right. Like when I met my teacher for the, the my first teacher for the first time the monk that was going to ordain me i had no idea i would be with him for 10 years right but i trusted him and i had affinity for the way he was practicing zen which turned out to be korean style yeah well here we have one hyo and he seems to be continuing it's it's great you know he he had an he had his awakening so to speak and what I think is great is that his story continues. It doesn't stop there. In fact, in fact, it's almost like that's where the story begins. Exactly. And that's we say that's where your, your practice begins. So you need to have this initial uh, awakening. And, and that's, that results in the correct view of what it is you're trying to do, knowing that there's going to be trials and tribulations on the path. But if you persist with it, you will get to that peace, that that place called great peace. Well, thank you, Sunam. I think we'll wrap up the podcast if that's all right at this point, and sure. uh, continue on with the story of One Hyo next week. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Mm-hmm.